Thank you, Russ. Um, you are more than welcome to correct anything I say. <laughs> Good morning, friends. Um, it always feels rude talking to you in the worship time before I've actually greeted you properly. So um, I want to greet you properly, but it also reflects an interesting reality of our lives and the life of a Christian, is that actually our priority is Jesus. And, and we dispense, and we need to dispense, and we have to dispense with our usual civilities when he's in the room. It's not because I disrespect you, it's just because I respect him more. <clears throat> oh, Lord help us. I'm just trying to get a timer going because I have notorious for um, just keeping going. Um, can I just say something about my hosts? <clears throat> Don't worry, I do um, stick fairly securely to the rules of confidentiality, so some of the things we've discussed will not be made public. Um, <laughs> I wanted to say thank you for the way you've hosted me this weekend as a church and as a community. Um, I felt entirely at home in Launceston. It's only the second time I visited this church, phone time, the second time I visited this city. Some of you may recognize me. I visited you guys last year when Tyron was here, and I spent all of about 28 hours in your city because of airline debacles. Um, and at that time, Russ and I chatted, and we talked about the fact that we we're really good to come back, and a year later, it actually became possible. But I've had the privilege this weekend of staying with Russ and Mary, and... My wife and I have had the privilege of knowing them for 17 years. We met them properly when we moved to Australia. We had heard them before. I'd heard both of them preach. Um, one particular preach, Mary preach, will forever stay in my memory. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, but for a very long time, I've held them in incredibly high regard. Mary, I, I went downhill this <laughs> Mary is an incredible, incredible host. Her generosity and grace is unsurpassed. And it's, it's not only humbling, it's actually embarrassing being hosted by her. Because she's so good that you recognize anything you do that's hosty is actually pretty pathetic. <laughs> so Mary, thank you. I don't mean to embarrass you, but I want to honor you. You guys are incredibly privileged to have this couple here. Russ, on the other hand, <laughs> is a man for who for a number of years I have had a great deal of envy. We're not meant to be envious in Christian circles. <clears throat> uh, 
Mary does not realize just how right she is. <clears throat> That's one of the three things I envy most about Russ. I have always fantasized that I would grow old and have a mop of really white hair. And if you've ever seen Leon van Dahl, Leon van Dahl was kind of the image I'd had in my head. And then Russ has been the next guy. And then when I was 24, I started going bald. And so that dream just went out the window. So I'm forever envious of his hair. But more importantly, I'm actually envious of his relationship with God and his understanding of God's word and God's ways. And then the third thing I'm really envious of, Russ Doty, is I wish I had his accent. <laughs> I have this accent which is kind of this bizarre mix of colored South African, a little bit of bizarre UK and Singapore thrown in, and then I've gone and lived in regional Queensland, so who knows what I sound like to the rest of the world now. He has never changed. <laughs> so buddy, I wish I spoke like you, both in content and sound. And I've said that essentially because I want to honor them, but I've also taken the time to do that. This has got nothing to do with my preach. I've also done that because I wanted you to get a chance to know a little bit about me. So that when I speak for the next 30 minutes or so, you don't take the first 15 minutes trying to decide whether or not you want to listen to me. I am not worth listening to. If anything I say is mine. Anything I say that belongs to Jesus is worth listening to. I'm going to endeavor this morning to talk about something and I can only hope I do justice to what God has laid in my heart. But I stand here because of his incredible grace. And in that context, I come with the firm belief that the Holy Spirit will make alive for you what God has stirred in my heart. So my content is probably irrelevant. What the Holy Spirit stirs in your heart, you need to lay hold of and allow it to change you. So let's go. That picture is taken in my garden in Cairns. <clears throat> It's an image of the Cairns birdwing butterfly. That's a female. It's the largest butterfly in Australia. Her wingspan is about 25 centimeters. It's huge, and when she flies, she actually looks like a bird. She only lives for five days. Her entire existence involves mating, laying eggs, and dying. That's it. I planted that vine because I was desperate to have Cairns birdwings in the garden. They only eat one type of plant. And so over the last few months, since I've planted this vine, I've been watching the life cycle of the Cairns birdwing unfold right outside my shed. And this life cycle starts with this egg. It's about the size of a dried peppercorn. And she lays them all over the place on various leaves and twigs and other things. And from this little peppercorn, when it hatches, comes out a little caterpillar who spends all of its time eating plants. It does nothing but eat. It's got multiple appendages, each of them tinged with a little splash of yellow. 
and its quest is to become the largest butterfly in Australia. It invests all of its effort, all of its energy, all of its time in that one thing. It's massive. The female is actually quite bland to look at. When you see the male, you realize why we're like the Ken's bird wing, just for its appearance. But that little caterpillar spends all of his time eating. He eats the leaves, he eats the pods, he even eats the stems, and in fact, they've eaten themselves out of home. But he grows until he is thicker than my thumb. And, oops, Tim, what do I have to do? Am I blocked out from the... Oh, there we go. That's what the caterpillar looks like, and that's about two-thirds the size of a fully grown one. They are immense. And then, one day he crawls off the leaf, which is actually quite a clever thing to do. I only realized, I wondered why they never seem to form their chrysalis on the leaves. It's only because of the rate at which they eat the leaves. So he actually goes and he puts his chrysalis somewhere else where the rest of the caterpillars won't eat the leaf. And then he looks something like that. That's hanging outside the door of my shed. And that little black thing hanging just next to it is all that's left of the caterpillar. He sheds his skin, forms that chrysalis. And then sometimes later, that chrysalis opens up. And while it's not quite as large as the female, sorry, <clears throat> that emerges. Now, if you can imagine that, bigger than my hand, flitting around your garden, you can't unsee it. It's just that impressive. As I said, I've been watching the cycle play itself out, and it's reminded me of the reality of the process of transformation that is meant to be happening in us as believers. From the point at which we were saved to the point at which we enter into the kingdom of God in its eternity sense, because we're already in the kingdom of God now, just before we start worrying about my theology, in the time we spend on earth in our mortal form, we are meant to be being transformed. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 Okay, Christy, I think you might just have to drive from there. Um, <clears throat> uh, okay, I can click to the next one, actually. Thank you. Paul writes this to the Galatian church, and he said, My children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. All of us with the Y chromosome don't know what that feels like. But there is a reality that Paul was so passionate about this thought. But he says, it's actually, it's like going through childbirth, because that's how deeply I feel about this. I am in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I looked at this word formed. The word that's used in that verse is a Greek word. Um, my pronunciation would be appalling, but it's morpho. It's from the Greek word morpha, and it has to do with shape. But it also has to do with nature, character. And 
the transformation that Paul is talking about is a change in shape, a change in nature that comes about by an adjustment of all the different parts. When you compare the adult Cairns birdwing butterfly with the caterpillar, you can see a few similarities. In fact, you can see one similarity. It's a mixture of dark and yellow. That's about all. Because in every other sense, the adult bears no resemblance to the caterpillar. <clears throat> that, that word is also used in, in a few other texts in the New Testament. It's, um, <clears throat> it's used in Mark, when Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you know how the scripture teaches us that Jesus appeared to the disciples and he appeared to them in a slightly different form, so much so that they did not recognize him. That's, that is exactly the same word that Paul uses when he talks about Christ being formed in us. That we would be unrecognizable from our former selves. It's the same word that is used in Philippians, where Paul says that Jesus, who by his very nature was God changed and set aside his glory to appear in human form. Friends, that's exactly the same. So Paul is saying the reality of the transformation that needs to come over us as believers is the transformation where the glorious king of heaven appeared in human form. The only difference is that in us it's in the other direction. Jesus laid aside the fullness of his divine glory, changed into a human likeness, to show us not only how to live, but also to substitute himself in our place and die for our sins so that we could live. So we need to have Christ formed in us. He needs to change our appearance. He needs to change how we come across, what we look like to other people. My dad used to tell me the story of a man he knew who was an alcoholic and actually had spent so much time abusing his body that physically he was a wreck. In fact, he was in hospital dying from liver failure. And he surrendered his life to Christ and changed his lifestyle and actually lived for another period of time. But in South Africa at the time, we had to actually carry around a photographic identity. It was actually the form of an identity book. And he went to the bank to access funds, and they wouldn't give him any money because he did not look like the picture in his identity book. Because the transformation in his life and his desires and his behavior completely changed his physical appearance. This gaunt, yellow, ill man was healthy again. Friends, Jesus does not want to come and pat you on the shoulder and make you feel okay. He wants to transform us. People come and see me as a psychiatrist in my rooms regularly. And they come in because they want me to take away some emotional pain that they're experiencing. And I think, you poor soul. I will do everything I can in my professional capacity and help you get along this path as far as we can go. But the reality is, Jesus does so much more than just make the pain go away. 
Jesus wants to change us in our actions, change how we behave, to change how we interact. And then, thanks, Chris, to the next one. He wants to change our articulations. He wants to change how we speak. My language before Christ and my language after Christ should not sound the same. My tone before Christ and my tone after Christ should not sound the same. The impact my words have on people before Christ and after Christ should not be the same. I want to talk briefly this morning about three areas in which we need to be transformed. The first, the, the ways, the, the, the components of this process of transformation, the first is that we have to be Jesus-focused. We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's an interesting reality about light. is that you can only see things that are reflecting light. But you can only reflect the light that hits you. If you stood behind that door and we shone a light, you would not reflect any of it. If you stood behind me, and this will probably work for most of you, and you shone a light, we would not see you. Definitely not Russ, no chance. If you stood behind me. If it was the other way around, if you shone a light on him, I'd probably still have bits that you'd catch. <laughs> but the point is, we can't reflect light that we're not exposed to. If we are to reflect Christ, if we are to demonstrate the glory of Christ, if we are to be transformed into his likeness, the only way that is going to happen is if we are exposed to him. I don't know how you felt in the worship time this morning, but I felt exposed. I've come here, I've been invited and I've been honored and I've been looked after so that I could get to preach to you guys. And what does the preacher do? He stands in the front, he puts his hands up and he starts crying. It's not exactly the way to inspire confidence in people who have never heard you speak. Because your heart's in the right place. Because the reality is, I want to reflect him. And if I face into him, and I have him standing there cradling my face in his hands, what's going to happen? I'm undone. So much of how we look at Jesus is determined by the filter through which we look on him. And it is time. The world spends enough time and takes up enough of our focus by distracting us and blurring him. But we then still have our own filters blurring him. You know, if we only ever see Jesus through the filter of our needs, we will only ever see him as our source when we're in trouble. And heaven forbid, the day I think I have a need that he doesn't think is a need. Because then it doesn't get met. Then what does that tell me about him? I can't only look at Jesus through the filter of my needs. That filter's got to come away. And you know what's amazing when we take the filter away? Is not only does he meet the needs I know about, he meets the ones I never knew I had. Mm. 
if we only ever see Jesus through the filter of his past acts, we don't live in the fullness of what he has for us. Somebody shared a testimony at the beginning of the meeting. But a miraculous medical intervention. And it reminded me of one I'd heard years ago. And I realized, actually, that's of no benefit to you. Because that happened years ago. What was shared today is, hang on, God just did this. We can go on and on. There's no shortage of filters that we put in. And I encourage you. Actually, go before him and say, Jesus, show me the filters I need to take away so that I see you in your fullness. We need to see Jesus in every aspect of his revealed glory because then only do we have any chance of reflecting every aspect of his revealed glory. The transformation of that caterpillar requires an irrepressible genetic imprint. If that caterpillar doesn't contain in its DNA every single detail of the adult butterfly, it has no hope of becoming one. Our very DNA needs to be transformed if we are going to reflect Jesus in his fullness. And that means every part of me. You know that little toe that I don't think about and I don't bother with and I only notice it ever if I happen to stub it? And sometimes it gets in the way when you're trying on shoes that are really pointy. Is my toe being transformed into the likeness of Christ? Or am I not prepared to go there? Come on, Angela, you're getting too serious. Chill out a bit. I am chill. This is the chill me. the same for the believer. Every aspect of Jesus having, every, having an impact on every fiber of who we are enables us to become like him. The second thing that happens is that having that genetic imprint of the adult butterfly is not enough. One of the things that's happened in this last little while is about a month ago, I had a lush vine covered the entire fence and it covered all of the wire um, I put up for it to creep on. And obviously the bird wings loved it because they just lay eggs everywhere. And one afternoon about three weeks ago, the vine was just covered in caterpillars. When I left Cairns on Sunday morning, the vine was almost dead. They have decimated it. But they have decimated it to the point that a lot of little caterpillars have died. There's no food for them to come to fullness. Because in order to become an adult Cairns birdwing butterfly, the caterpillar actually has to grow to full stature. And in order to achieve that, it has to spend all of its time eating until it gets that big. Because transformation requires energy, requires power. Thanks, Christine. We have to be Holy Spirit empowered if we are going to be transformed into Christ-likeness. We've got to be focused on Him. We've got to be linked into Him. We've got to be reflecting Him. But the Holy Spirit has to be the impetus that makes the change happen. 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We need to be tapping into the Holy Spirit empowering us to be like Jesus. For too long, we have listened to the lie that says our sanctification is the result of us changing our behavior. The truth is, the change in our behavior is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in us and our sensitivity to it. If God changes how I behave, then I will change in the right direction and I will not change back. If I just get up one morning and decide I'm going to change how I behave, well, the trouble is tomorrow I will have either forgotten or I will have forgotten how to. And it's a reality that unless we have the fire of the Holy Spirit burning within us, the change is always going to be limited by our own capacity. There's a third element to the transformation of the Cairns Birdwing. The Cairns Birdwing is incredibly single-minded. The caterpillar does one thing and one thing only. And for this, I have great respect for it. It only ever eats. <laughs> I could have been a Cairns Birdwing butterfly caterpillar. <laughs> It is though its entire existence is focused on one thing. The problem with the Ken's bird being butterfly is only ever gets to eat one thing. And I'm not so sure I like that part of the deal. It spends all of its time devouring food. Even when it is threatened, it puts out two little proboscis actually at the back end, but it makes it look like it's the head end, and they are bright red in color. And that is the indication to any predator that it is poisonous. But while it's doing that, the other end is eating. <laughs> it doesn't move, it doesn't curl up, it doesn't crawl away, it just carries on eating. Focused on Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but God gives us a task to do. He says we've got to renew our minds. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world's thinking, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test what God's will is. His good, pleasing, perfect will. If we reflect on our walk with Jesus from the day of our salvation to today, how much has our thinking actually changed? And I don't mean just in terms of content. I mean in terms of process. How we think, not only what we think. Ross told you that I'm a shrink. Because he has respect for me, he didn't use that word, but it's the same thing. 
my email address says shrink, so I have to spell it out for people because <clears throat> every now and then people spam folder dumps me because of that. Um, <clears throat> but all of my training and all of the process of my professional development has been around this whole thing of thinking. And I've learned, if nothing else, that there is an incredible power in our lives, our experiences, our function, and our destiny if our thinking is wrong. Those of you who were here yesterday, I don't know if you noticed the slip when I was actually speaking um, after us, when we were actually just responding um, to what God was doing in our midst. If you hadn't picked it up, I'll, t I'll repeat it for you now. I said, you didn't come here to listen to an idiot from Queensland. Yesterday I talked about how we should never do that to ourselves. <clears throat> we all saw that. Good. <laughs> but the thing is, is that's the sort of thing that automatically happens. We have these thoughts that come through that are actually not of God. Yeah, I was responding to the Holy Spirit and trying to share what God was doing in my heart. And this word, that had nothing to do with what God was actually saying. Slips out. It's a part of the thinking that hasn't been completely renewed yet. There's still work to be done. Which is why I'm still here and not there. <clears throat> Albert Einstein said this. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Albert Einstein was a very clever man. But what he was saying was not new. That's what God has meant for us all along. Our way of thinking needs to be renewed. It needs to be changed. If we want to move forward, if we want to move into more of what God has for us, then our thinking has to change. Renewed minds are minds that have a new way of thinking. For those of you who haven't picked it up, I'm an expat South African. There is a whole bunch of stuff in my genetics that is still very African. Um, as soon as African rhythms come up, a whole bunch of stuff inside me starts to move. And it takes a great deal of self-control for the outside stuff to not move. It's where I was born. It's where I was genetically engineered. It has, made, it has shaped so much of who I am. And it is probably the prime result I am, <clears throat> prime reason I am the shape I am. But I gave up being a South African. I've had to take off some South Africanness. And just for this week, I have been Tasmanian. <laughs> With our thinking, I finally see in the light. <laughs> With our thinking, we have to take off and put on. Yeah. 
So what do we have to take off? Well, we've got to put off the worldly patterns of thinking. Some of the patterns of this world's thinking the scripture teaches about is that this world's thinking is immature in its nature. 1 Corinthians 14.20, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Grow up. Oh, I wish I could say that to my patients. In regard to evil infants, be naive, be innocent. But when it comes to your thinking, be grown-ups. How do children think compared to adults? Children are self-absorbed. Should be the next one. Children are driven by their needs. They're prone to disobedience. They're inflexible. They're concrete. Black is black and white is white and there is nothing in between. Well, then there are no koalas. There are no whales. There are no dolphins. Actually, there's none of you or me because we're neither black or white. We're something in between. And our thinking, how concrete do we become? It's either black or it's white. There are things in the scripture which are black and white. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff about which the scripture is very gray. When we are black about the gray, we've got a problem. Now that's actually a problem in the way we think, changing what we think and the decisions we make. Second type of worldly pattern that we've got to move away from is futility of thinking. Ephesians 4.17, I tell you this, and I insist on it. Very strong words. Paul's not saying, suggestion, take this on board if you think it's helpful. Paul says, I'm telling you, Lance, do this. Do not live like the Gentiles do, because their thinking is futile. It is ineffective. It does not bring them change. Why is it those things? Well, because it comes out of a hard heart. It comes out of a heart that is inflexible, a heart that doesn't come to God and say, God, I am here. Let me live different. It's a heart that says, God, I am here. And give me brownie points because I showed up. Now sometimes we need the brownie points just because we showed up. But God's saying, actually, you've shown up. Now I want to not just give you brownie points. I want to actually make you better. I want to actually move you forward. I want to actually change your life. And in order to do that, you need to let me make some adjustments. You need to let me make some tweaking. Change the shape. Change the attitude. So from our point of view, if we come in with a rigid, hard heart, what hope do we have? Is that because God is weak and ineffective? No. It's not his fault. It's my fault. If my heart is not flexible in his hands. Thinking that involves a separation from God. So I'm coming to God and I want to be with God, but the reality is, there's God, but I don't want him to change me. I want him to be my friend, but I don't actually want him to change my life. That's futile thinking, friends. Because then we think God is going to make our lives better, 
Well, we won't let him change the badness we don't want. <laughs> Futile thinking is self-indulgent. It says, I come because of what God's going to do for me. Now, this is an interesting challenge we have as Christians because when we come to God, God does stuff for us. We come to the place of worship, what happens? We live blessed. We live encouraged. We live energized. So what happens is we start to think, well, hang on, I come to worship so that I can feel okay. I come to church so that I can feel better. That's actually got the cart before the horse. I worship because he deserves to be worshipped. The fact that he helps me feel great because of it is just bonus. It's not the reason. <clears throat> and then the third thing we've got to dispense with is thinking that it's based on nostalgia. We have incredibly long memories. We remember the good things God has done. And there's a reason for that, because God wants us to remember the good things he has done. The trouble comes when we live in the good things he has done, rather than let the good things he has done stir our faith so we can live in the good things he is still going to do. Our past is not irrelevant to our future, but it is not our future. Hebrews 11.15, talking about the heroes of the faith. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. I think of South Africa with fondness. Apart from my wife and kids, all the rest of my family are there. A whole bunch of my friends are there. People who were important in the forming of my life. In the years when I was wrestling with the deep things of God, those are the guys, the guys who I had to spend half the night up with, chatting about theology, chatting about what God is doing, worshipping, breaking our hearts together. The guys I sorrowed with, the guys I rejoiced with, they are mostly still there. Do you know the only thing I really miss about South Africa? Is being out in the African bush looking for animals. When I go back, what do I do? I spend most of my time with the people that I, I used to hang around with. But the only thing I wish I could have was the occasional lion. We were fun. But rhinos would be even better. See, the thinking has to be, that was great, and I've had great memories, and I've great experiences, but I can't keep hankering back for it. I've substituted crocodiles for lions. I've substituted bird-winged butterflies. I was going to say for drongos, but it's actually it's not the drongos, because we have drongos here too. <laughs> I don't, so I haven't lost on the drongos, except South Africa's got two different species. Australia's just got one. <clears throat> okay, let me not go down that track, because we won't come back. <clears throat> We need to remember the blessings of yesterday so that our faith is built up so that we can live in the promises of tomorrow. We have to move away from living in the blessings of yesterday and then being disappointed about tomorrow. You never get to tomorrow if you live in yesterday. 
And the fourth way of thinking that Paul talks in, the, in his letter to the Romans. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were hardened. A worldly pattern revolves around a foolish way of thinking. Verse 22, which is on the next slide. Although they claimed to be wise, they became foolish, became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. When we take the glory of the immortal God and we confine him to something that we can create and fully understand, we are being foolish. Paul's words, not mine. So don't throw stones at me. The Bible does tell us we're not meant to call each other fools. Paul's calling us all fools if we take the glory of the immortal God and we confine him to something that we can put together or fully understand. The day I claim to fully understand the God I serve and everything about his ways, take me out and shoot me. Because when I get to, if I can get to the point where I say, well, I've got a handle on God now, well, then he ceases to be God. Because I've become bigger than him. If I can fully understand him, then he has to be smaller than me. Because that means my brain is bigger than he is. And if God is entirely within my understanding, then he has really become a figment of my imagination. He's no longer God. Which is why I come to the place of worship and I stand there and I sing about how because of what he has done, I can be here. I am undone. Because how do I stand before the immortal God and dare to speak on his behalf? I don't understand him completely. So how can I speak on his behalf? Only because he told me to. And he told me what to say. So if I limit myself to what he told me to say, then I've done okay. That's why I didn't go down that other little rabbit warren. Because he didn't tell me to say that. <clears throat> See, most of our complaint about God and the complaint we hear from people say, how does a good God allow evil? If God is so gracious, why does he send people to hell? God never sent anybody to hell. People go there because they want to. Because that's their choice. God says, there's hell. Don't go there. Come with me. No, no, no. I don't want to go with you, God. I'd rather have the other option. Well, then that's your fault. That's not his fault. But it's because we fail to understand that God is bigger than us. We don't understand all of his ways. We don't understand everything about him. So when we reach something that we don't comprehend, we make it his fault. It's not his fault, friends. The fact that we do not have a complete comprehension of God should elevate our worship, not disillusion us. Probably the best thing for my worship lifestyle has been the realization that God is bigger than I will understand. And when that thing got settled, 
It doesn't matter if I don't know the song. I can worship. It doesn't matter if I don't like the song. I can worship. It doesn't matter if the person singing next to me is out of key. I can still worship. It doesn't matter if what they're doing is all raucous and wild and I'm this kind of demure person. I can still worship. Because it's not about them, it's about him. Our foolish thinking ruins worship. Our foolish thinking ruins what we can do for God. Because how do you go out to a total stranger? God prompts your heart, and he says, I've got a word for that person. You have no idea who they are. You've got no right to go up and talk to them in human sense. And God says, go and talk to that person, because I've got a word for them. How dare you go up to them if it's not because an immortal God has said go? On my own, I have no right. The true God is bigger, not smaller, than my mental capacity to understand him. And that drives me to my knees. Why do we want to contain him? Why do we want to confine him? Why do we want to control him? It's foolishness to serve a God that's smaller than you are. And then Paul says, actually Peter says, put on the new thinking. 2 Peter 3 verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. He had to write to them twice to tell them the same thing because they never got it the first time. So Russell might have to come back and say this again. Sorry. (laughs) Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Friends, what is wholesome thinking? It's a thinking that reflects on who God is what he has done, and what he has promised to do. I'm going to finish by reading a scripture which is not up there, Christy. You can turn it off. Thank you. It's from 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. And it's the account where Jehoshaphat had to face the people because they were under attack by an army that was far greater than them. Now You probably remember the account because it's the account where God sent the worshippers out in front of everybody else. Worship team? You thought it was just about being the band? Actually, you're in the front line of the battlefield. You are the first guys. You're the firing line. So the enemy goes for you first. Jehoshaphat addresses the crowd, and then he prays. And it's actually his prayer um, that I want to just read for you this morning. So write this down. You can go and reflect on it afterwards. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard, and he said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not? And then he listed God's attributes. So the first thing Jehoshaphat faced and he stated and he looked at was the very nature of who God is. Are you not? And he goes, Lord, you're the God of our ancestors. You rule over the kingdoms. Power and might are in your hand. No one can withstand you. At that point in time, they were faced with this insurmountable enemy and problem. 
Joshua says, we need to remember who God is. And then he goes on to say, oh God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people and give it forever? We need to remember who God is, but then we need to remember what he has done, how he has demonstrated who he is. So it comes before God and says, God, are you not the God who's just amazing, awesome, incredible, untouchable? And haven't you already driven out our enemies, dealt with this sort of problem before? We know, God, you can do it because you've got a track record. And then Jehoshaphat prays. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry it. He's basically saying, this is how we responded before when we thought about who you are and what you had done. But now, here are these men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you wouldn't allow us to invade. The only reason they still exist, God, because you wouldn't allow us to go there. They've come from Egypt See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us. God, they're taking away what you gave us, not what we looked after for ourselves. Because that's, that's all we have claimed to. It's what God has given us. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Friends, nothing I've said this morning has any relevance if it doesn't bring us to that point. For all of the clever words, for all of the antics, for all of the jokes to try and unnerve you and try to have us a bit more relaxed, all of the techniques we use when we communicate with people, for all of that, we don't know what to do. <laughs> so what do we do when we don't know what to do? We fix our eyes. You see, God delivered this message in the third song during the worship time this morning. Isn't that what he said? The world is trying to blot me out of your vision. So who's the holy one? Who's the awesome one? Who's the God of all time? Thanks, Russ.